Welcome to Rocky Mountain Unexplained. Western North America is the perfect place for any good secret to hide. And we're dedicated to digging up every mystery the Rockies have to offer. I'm Ari. And I'm Tate. Join us as we explore the Rocky Mountains for its unsolved true crime, the paranormal, and every unsettling thing in between. Hello, welcome to our ASMR channel. Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> um, hello, welcome to Rocky Mountain Unexplained. Welcome that was again. like really breathy. <laughs> welcome to Rocky Mountain. Yeah. You know what? That's the worst thing about NPR is they have no pop filters. You can hear like everything. I don't know if that's the right word, but. No, you're right. You're right. It's like, you can. Hello, my name so is. It is gross. It's, I hate it so much. You can hear every noise they're making, and I'm like, oh my god. Ooh, hopefully I don't sound like that. No, we don't. I I edit the show, and <laughs> we don't normally hear sounds like that, even though we don't NPR have is live. Now. It's not being edited, so. Well, but even so, like, you can, I don't know, it's just <laughs> They don't have very much funding, okay? Okay. <laughs> um... Yeah, how do you start a podcast? Um, good question. Well, here we are, we're back, it's been one week, don't check the time. Yeah, time moves differently in the Rocky Mountains, fun fact. (laughs) How Ari is so deep in the mountains, time just passes real weird for her. Yeah, that's actually kind of true. Every day is just the same over and over. (laughs) Lots of moose. Lots of moose, lots of deer. Have you seen a bear? No, but I know that there have been bears here before. And mountain lions. Mm, Mountain lions are scary. I saw a bear this year already. Where? Up in the mountains, kind of by Wyoming. Just like rolling down the hill. Wow. Um, I hope you all have, like, walking above me, but if it is, it's just for effect, obviously. Yeah, obviously. This is for crazy conspiracy theorists in a basement. Yeah, actually, I am in a basement. Right. All right, well, maybe we can use that cold open. Otherwise... uh, Okay. Hi, Ari. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Tate. How's it going? It's, It's all right. How are you? Uh, I'm not doing too bad. Um, summer is going by too fast, and it's too hot. It is very hot. Out here in the Pacific Northwest, like, hottest temperatures on record in some states. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard Portland is just on fire. Yeah. Well, not on fire. Not literally, but but yeah. It's pretty dry. (laughs) All right, well, there's our obligatory weather talk. Welcome to Rocky Mountain Meteorology. Where we discuss weather balloons. That's what I'm talking about later. Okay. No joke. Is there more? No, it's um, quote unquote weather balloons, you know? Yeah. Um, Cool. (laughs) to, To stay topical in the news, as Ari knows, because I won't shut up about it, um... The big old UFO report has finally been released to the public. Yeah, it has. It um, They didn't say the word alien at all in there, but they did say several of the crafts defied the laws of gravity, so it appeared. So definitely very mm-hmm. advanced. Defied the laws of, like, known aviation, too, or something like that, and... That might have been the phrase is, they used. There's a, yeah. there's a nice little line where they're like, we'll follow the data wherever it takes us. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, there's we should we should definitely cover like, uh, Skinwalker Ranch. The government kind of used that as a site to study UFOs, and I think I might talk about that later. Not today, but like not to, eventually. Yeah. No, you maybe definitely next should. episode. 
And <laughs> I know there's so much, and some of these reports are in the West, so maybe we can get away talking about it. But oh man, yes. it's just so so cool. And there's still quite a few of the reports are actually still classified, um, like details on them, because that's the government for you, I guess, or something. But exactly. Oh man, yeah. I've just been I've been freaking out. <laughs> Everyone around me is just so sick of my crap. I'm like, I'll tell you who it's not. I don't think it's the Russians. Rather than actually <laughs> I think saying it's the aliens. Aliens, yeah, exactly. Listen, I'm All not right, crazy. Sorry if my stomach is growling weird. Um, it's That's the morning. The aliens too, yeah. It's the aliens talking from inside my stomach. <laughs> On the topic of UFOs, I do have something related to UFOs and government cover-ups in my segment today. Um, what's your segment about today, Ari? Um, so we're coming to the close of Pride Month, but I want to talk about a case that really shaped LGBT legislation in the United States, and that's the case of Matthew Shepard. If you're from Wyoming or the Wyoming area, you probably have heard about this, but I'm not sure it's very well known now since decades have passed. Yeah, but let's but, dive into um, yours first, question mark. I mean, you always make me go first. But <laughs> I, <laughs> I can go first. I okay. think yours might be the bigger bummer because I do know this case. Um, so do we want to leave the listeners on a high note or do we want to <laughs> um, <laughs> get to them first? Get to the um, less heavy stuff first. That's a good point. I think... I'm scared, like, this might need, this will probably need a warning on it, so I think if we do yours first, then they can just end the episode there if they don't feel like listening. Okay. All right. Does that Good make plan. sense? Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. So, um, my story today is the infamous Battle of Los Angeles, which is not the uh, flop of a movie from however many years ago, but the actual uh, event. Have you heard of the Battle of Los Angeles, Ari? Is this something you're at all familiar with? Um, was this the thing that happened in the 1800s across the United States but started in L.A.? Um, no, actually. I don't know what you're talking about, though. Okay, then I but... don't know what you're talking about, so <laughs> maybe I'm you're excited. Talking about, yeah, maybe something for a future episode. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Well... All right, so if you've never heard the story about Los Angeles, I'm excited for you to hear this one. I think it's got a lot of good stuff. Um, so without further ado, let's get started with some background on the event. So as you, Ari, a history buff, well know, on December 7th, 1941, there was a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor by the Japanese that killed thousands and left the world in shock. And for Americans, especially those in the Western states, Many were left on edge, fearing the next inevitable attack. So, this is when the event takes place, the Battle of Los Angeles. It's in the early months of World War II, or at least the early months after the, after the United States enters the war. And just to kind of set the scene, um, you know, there, everyone was pretty worked up at this point. Um, many thought that what had happened in Hawaii, what they had heard on the radio happening in, in Europe and across the world was going to start coming to the western United States and the western coast specifically. Um, right after Pearl Harbor, everyone was really put into war mode. There would be, everyone was learning the different codes that would go out over the radio at night sometimes or how to prepare for attacks. People joined civilian volunteer groups um, that would, you know, serve the community in case of an attack. Um, and everyone was just kind of in this hyper-patriotic, serve-the-war-effort kind of mood. Um, but underlying that, there was this really tense anticipation for what many thought was an inevitable invasion by the Japanese. Um, and nowhere was this more true than Southern California, especially for the city of Los Angeles, 
which had a thriving population at the time. It had a ton of vital war industries. It had the largest harbor on the West Coast. Uh, to many, it just seemed like the perfect target uh, for any uh, campaign that the Japanese might start in the continental U.S. And then that was only made worse when, on February 23rd, 1942, the fears of so many of the Southern Californians was suddenly realized when a Japanese submarine attacked an oil field just off the coast of Santa Barbara. So it didn't really kill anybody, but they'd finally seen a Japanese attack on the continental U.S. Uh, and so everyone was put on high alert. And in fact, the next day on February 24th, Navy intelligence warned residents of Southern California that there may be an attack within the next 10 hours. And eventually those 10 hours would pass, but the city spent much of the day on high alert, just preparing for enemy bombardment. By the end of the evening on February 24th, around 7 p.m., the entire city of Los Angeles is issued on uh, high alert and put under blackout orders, uh, which isn't that uncommon in the World War II era, but, you know, kind of serves to put people on edge. Uh, you know, I can, I know some older people who've told me stories about going into blackout, um, who the people from Europe or the West, um, and it's just kind of, I don't know, it's, I imagine that whole time you're just imagining what might be happening, especially where these are very early days of the war, like, memories of Pearl Harbor are still really fresh. So, the city's under this really tense anticipation that there could be attack, an attack at any time. And even though the alert is lifted some hours later, uh, the city of LA returns to high alert shortly after midnight when multiple radars detect an unidentified object 120 miles west of the city over the Pacific Ocean, seemingly headed right towards them. That would be terrifying. Yeah, and I mean, it's World War II, so you assume it's a plane, um, but regardless, like, uh, yeah, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's a sense, shivers down my spine, like, just Im imagining someone looking at a radar and just something headed towards you, Ugh. But, yeah, so in light of that, um, air raid sirens sound across the entire county, thousands of volunteers and officials start to man the anti-aircraft weapons, and before long, high-powered beams of searchlights scan the city's sky, searching for any incoming objects. Or planes, presumably. Um, so everyone at this point is awake. The air sirens have obviously woken people up. And volunteers and even civilians are just deadlocked on the sky, searching for, you know, the Japanese warplanes that are going to be incoming. And the information desk is flooded with people saying they're seeing these planes. Uh, shortly after the air raids begin, um, people are saying they're seeing Japanese airplanes overhead, um, calling the information desks and trying to get um, things moving, but no one's really fired at this point. However, that changes when just after 3 a.m., one of the teams manning some of the anti-aircraft guns see what they believe is the plane from the radar or some other object. They open fire and soon after that, every anti-aircraft gun in the city is firing into the sky presuming that whoever was coming has finally arrived. And at this point, the Battle of Los Angeles has begun. It's absolute chaos. There are 1,400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition fired into the air over the course of the next few hours. The night sky is just pocketed with explosions of these ammunitions, and before long, the clear night sky is just filled with plumes of smoke. In the chaos, there's reports of enemy paratroopers landing in backyards. Some people say they saw enemy planes crashing into, you know, uh, famous streets and things and many will swear that they saw dozens of enemy planes in the beams of the searchlights. 
which just to set the scene for you, there are like, I think dozens of searchlights scanning the sky. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Like the entire ground is blacked out, but overhead there's just these searchlights scanning the sky yeah. and like, <laughs> yeah, right. That would be so terrifying. Okay. Also wait. So wait, do the enemy planes actually get there without, let me rephrase this. Are people actually seeing enemy planes? Yeah. No, people People would later testify then and right after the incident that they're seeing enemy planes all over the place. But they're not really enemy planes. They're these UFOs? Okay, this is where um, it gets a little weird. So um, the city of Los Angeles just, you know, they're kind of caught up in this chaos in the battle, you know, like the city has never seen. Um, but, you know, this kind of chaotic will end in only a few hours but when it does and here's the weird part there are no enemy planes found there is no shrapnel of enemy planes and remember there was 1400 rounds of anti-aircraft ammunition fired into the sky yeah i was just wondering like how would the planes even have gotten there that fast i mean maybe they could have i don't know what world war ii planes were like but i feel like they were slow I mean, they come in, I imagine they come in fairly quickly. I also don't know. Um, but regardless, people said they were there and they didn't yeah. shoot down a single one. There was no shrapnel. There was no bombs. So whenever you, when the dust clears in the morning, there's, you know, thousands of eyewitnesses claiming to have seen something in the sky. Um, the city is pocketed, like so, so many parts of the city are just pocketed with bullet marks from these anti-aircraft ammunition. Uh, there's a couple deaths from, like, car accidents in the blackout and things. Um, just absolute chaos in the aftermath, but seemingly there were no planes. I mean, right afterwards that morning, um, authorities are really conflicted about what happened. Um, the Secretary of the Navy concludes it was just nervous jitters and there was nothing in the skies over L.A. that night. While other officials in the military, like the Secretary of War and some in the Army, conclude that there must have been numerous planes flying, being flown overhead by the enemy that night. Now, there were no aircraft carriers found off the coast, so these planes would have either had to have been commercial planes hijacked by the Japanese, or they would have been the kind of light planes that you can fit in a Japanese submarine. But regardless, um, the government can't decide what happened here. In the days after, you know, these, the Angelinos are waking up after, uh, well, maybe they, they probably didn't sleep at all, but they're, uh, you know, they're, they're remembering this battle as it'll come to be referred to. And they wake up and in the news, there are some people telling them no one was there and other people telling them, yeah, there were planes there. Somehow none of them were shot down. Um, and, you know, it just kind of leads to this strange um, disaffection with what authorities are saying about what happened and a lot of frustration like people in other parts of the countries are like why how did you know all these like American military people and civilian volunteers just get spooked into having a three-hour battle with nothing and you know today the Battle of Los Angeles is more or less regarded as just this kind of mass hysteria event um, and Things like what people saw are explained away as either being hysteria or they're explained away as being the clouds of smoke. Because once the ammunition was fired in the air, there was just tons of smoke everywhere. And in fact, there was one guy, like one military guy who said, yeah, I saw like dozens of planes. And then I looked a little closer and I realized I was just seeing things in the smoke. And so that's kind of what people say all the sightings were and that. Huh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. He was paid to say that. No, so are you looking at the notes? No, but I was just kidding. Oh. Uh, well, I was. Um, uh, yeah, maybe he was paid to say that. Um, but interestingly, there were those who were paid the other way. So, or not paid, but threatened. So to explain, um, many also believe this was a result of a weather balloon because... Just before the firing started around 3 a.m., there was actually a weather balloon, like a meteorological weather balloon launched just before then, which 
Uh, who's putting that out while the city's on high alert? But anyway, <laughs> there was a weather balloon uh, launched just before the battle began. You know, so maybe some of these tense volunteers, you know, it's really dark. They might have saw this object and mistook it for an enemy plane, even if it was just for a second. You know, just enough to get them firing. And then once someone else is firing, you think something's there, you start firing, that sort of thing. Um, and one soldier even claimed that the military threatened him to never share his story uh, that he fired on a balloon by accident that night. So, I mean, that's led a lot of people to think the battle started with just this weather balloon straying into the sky and then kind of got out of hand from there. Um, and also, we know for sure there were no Japanese planes because the Japanese government would later confirm there were no aircraft in the area at that time. But, you know, the consensus is that this was just a case of a bunch of jumpy Angelinos firing at balloons in the middle of the night, but not everyone's convinced by that. And can you kind of think of some reasons why that might be? Sorry, I feel like a teacher. <laughs> yeah, I kind of just feel like a teacher. Not everyone's convinced of... Wait, can you repeat the question? Yeah, I mean, well, okay, so the official story is that a weather balloon got loose in the night that's what they were firing at. Um, and that's what started the whole incident. It was just a weather balloon. Okay. Yeah, it makes them seem very... Um... Oh, hi, Petra. There's my cat. Uh... <laughs> hey, Petra. <laughs> hey, Petra. Um, yeah, no. Who wants a military that, like, fires at enemy balloons? What? Sorry, Petra's distracting me. Now I'm like a student. Answer the question, teacher. Uh, yeah, no, it's um, it's a bad look for the military for sure, which is why some people say, like, the Secretary of War wanted to say there were planes there just to save face. But, you know, the classic thing that any UFO believer will say to you when you tell them it was a weather balloon is they'll say, well, they tracked the object across the sky. Like, tons of people saw it. And they were aliens. firing... Well, I mean, they do say aliens, but they, they bring up the point that there were 1,400 rounds of ammunition fired into the air. Don't you think that would take down a weather balloon? <laughs> yeah, it probably would. It's just so trippy that it, like, disappeared. It must have been very advanced. Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of disappeared in all the smoke and stuff, but for a while, um, you know, according to some eyewitnesses, they were tracking this object across the sky. So you would think they would have got it down. I don't know. There are some that say the way air balloons move through the sky, they're like both horizontal and vertical. They don't move like planes do. And so maybe that would be harder to fire at. But I don't know. You feel like they would have shot the balloon down and that would have been the end of it. Yeah, exactly. But so that's led a lot of people to be skeptical um, of the official version of events. So to to sound a bit like a conspiracy theorist. The true treasure takeaway for UFO believers, however, is a particular photograph of the incident. And are you in the notes right now? I can be, yes. I want to show you this photo because it's pretty cool. You might actually recognize it too. And you can see it in the news clip. I'll put another photo below there. Listeners, you can see this photo if you just Google Battle of Los Angeles. It should be like the first photo that comes up. And if you're at all familiar with UFOs, you'll probably recognize it. I'm willing to bet. So you can see that photo, Ari. Uh, how would you describe that to the listeners? I can, yeah. I don't know how necessarily I describe it because um, it's very bizarre. So it's black and white because it's from the 40s. But then there's like these spiky rays of light coming from a single source that's in the sky and there's little dots of light around it as well yeah so the rays of light are um, the search beams that they're using to scan the sky um, but they've all honed in on like a single point in the sky presumably wherever the object they've been tracking is so I mean, it's just this, like, the incredible photo. You can see the outline of the mountains around L.A., and you can see the all these searchlights, these, like, intense beams 
all focused in on one spot. There's some explosions around the spot is what those little lights are. And then in the center, some will see they say a UFO, or at the very least that the object that is the UFO is somewhere in that intense beam of light. And that's what all the beams are focusing on. And this photo has come, kind of become a, a calling card for UFO believers. It's maybe one of the most iconic photos um, in UFO mythology. And it's, I mean, it's a great photo if you look at it. Now, the actual photo itself is a little doctored, um, so most people will dismiss it, but I don't know. If you look at the undoctored photo, there really isn't that much change. It was it's really just a just, little more blurry, yeah. Yeah, well, and let me try to find a better photo of the original. Um, because the original just really is, yeah, here's one. Okay, let me post that in there. Um, the original is just harder to see stuff. And it was a common practice of newspapers at the time to, um, you know, touch things up so they could be better seen in the newspaper. But they haven't, like, drawn a UFO into the doctored photo or anything. It's just a little easier to see the outline of the mountains and some of the search beams. I was going to say that I think, like, honestly, the point where it comes together is more clear, but the mountains aren't there. And so I think that's why they changed it. Yeah, I mean, it like nothing of substance has really been changed. It's like you've just turned up the brightness on the photo. So dismissing anything in this photo because it's supposedly been doctored is just silly because it, it hasn't been like photoshopped uh, all that much. And you can still find the original and it's still a really compelling photo. But, you know, uh, this and so... That's kind of what UFO believers point to is this photo and the fact that um, they just don't buy that a weather balloon could have caused the whole Battle of Los Angeles, which is understandable, especially if you were in the battle, um, right? Like if you went through all that and someone's like, oh, it's just a weather balloon, you'd be like, uh, fuck off. No. <laughs> um, so that makes sense, but I mean, I see why people believe that anyway, but whatever the true answer, we're not ever going to have the evidence we need to prove this one way or another. It's been 80 years, and we're still just going to be left to wonder who exactly it was. The people of L.A. kind of battled that night in February 1942. Well, thank you for sharing. Um, not at all what I thought this is going to be like, but definitely intriguing, so. But yeah, no, it, it is interesting. I think Occam's Razor, it probably wasn't aliens, um, you know, because we've seen people go into mass hysteria before. Um, yeah. And there was a lot at this time. I mean, the darkest example at this time is the Japanese internment camps, right? Like, people just worked up about what they thought Japanese people would do, you know, racism and the fear of the war and everything uh, led to these internment camps. In fact, after the Battle of Los Angeles, although it appeared we were fighting no one, uh, there were actually, sadly, several Japanese who were arrested for signaling to the enemy during the attack. So, I don't think it's crazy to think that, you know, the kind of paranoia going around could lead to something like the Battle of Los Angeles, but I certainly want to believe there was more to it than just jittery nerves. Yeah, I can, yeah, I don't know. I was going to say a sentence, but then I lost it. Um <laughs> So, <laughs> well, thank you. Is that all you have for us? Just like, I don't know, I feel like is it that sucks, it? that story's so like, you know, <laughs> that's what you feel like. You're like, is that it? But it is. I mean, that's what makes it a mystery. Um, there really isn't uh, much more to talk about. There had been like all these documents that confirmed the military covered things up, but they were later proven to be hoaxes. You go a little more in depth on, depth on things, but... I mean, that's kind of it. The evidence doesn't really go very strongly one way or another, though probably most strongly towards uh, the weather balloon. But, you know, in in the UFO circles, weather balloon is always code for government cover-up. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, that's true. I'm I'm glad you're hip with the UFO lingo. Oh, you know it. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, of the 144 cases uh, in the UFO report the government just released, I believe one of them was explained, and I think it might have been a weather balloon. I have to confirm that. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. <laughs> so I want to preface this um, with saying this crime is... First off, it's explained, but we're breaking the rule. Um, for our we'll podcast, <laughs> our we'll podcast, it. I'll allow it. Okay. Um, <laughs> second, I do want to say that this is a really gruesome crime, and so if things like that bother you, you probably just want to end the episode right here. So goodbye. Have a good day. Yeah, a gruesome hate crime too. So ooh, hate crime. That's a good word to describe it. Okay, before I talk about the awful crime that made Matthew Shepard's name synonymous with LGBT legislation and one of the worst moments in Wyoming's history, I want to share a little bit about Matthew's life. Although he only lived to be 21 years old, which is actually our age right now, which is, like, scary, um, he had an exciting and promising life. Matthew attended high school in Casper, Wyoming before going to school in Switzerland, During his time abroad and his early college years, his parents lived in Saudi Arabia, where his father was an oil rig inspector. Um, Matthew attended the University of Wyoming in Laramie, where he studied foreign relations, political science, and languages. Also just like us. I know, right? Like, oh man. (laughs) I know. Kind of right down our alleys. Yeah. Um, According to his family, Matthew dreamed of becoming an American diplomat. On campus, he was active in the LGBTQ plus club, and he was very open about who he was. I believe his parents' description of their son summarizes him best. He was, quote, an ordinary kid who wanted to make the world a better place, end quote. On October 6, 1998, Matthew started his day like normal. At the meeting of LGBTQ plus students of the University of Wyoming, he helped plan the Awareness Week for that group. He got coffee with some friends and invited them to the bar. Their rejection did not stop Matthew from going alone. He headed to the Fireside Lounge, a gay bar in Laramie, Wyoming. While there, two men approached Matthew and pretended to be gay in order to gain Matthew's trust. In reality, they were high school dropouts and chronic meth users. Their names were Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. I'll just be referring to them from the... I will be using their first names to refer to them from here on out. Okay, hold on. Petra is, like, wanting to climb all over everything. (laughs) Petra, stop. Come on. Go down. Okay. Um, While the men worked together on roofing projects, it has been described that their relationship was more complex than just co-workers. Aaron served as the charismatic leader, while Russell was the dedicated follower. They were not in a relationship. That makes it sound like they were, but they were not. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> sorry. So Matthew knew none of this when he shared a beer with the men and left the fireside lounge with them. They drove Matthew to a... Re- Ugh, sorry, my speaking skills are like out the window today. Um, okay. They drove Matthew to a rural area east of Laramie. Once pulled over, Aaron admitted to Matthew that they pretended to be gay so they could rob him. Aaron used a pistol to whip Matthew 20 times. The final blow damaged Matthew's brainstem beyond repair. Next, Aaron ordered Russell to retrieve white clothesline from the truck. Russell bound Matthew's naked body to a fence owned by a livestock company. Hmm. The two men stole his wallet, ID, and expensive shoes before leaving Matthew unconscious in the bitter cold to die. So, definitely graphic and that's... awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Aaron and Russell returned to Laramie around 12.30 a.m. and assaulted two more men. Shortly after, police stopped Aaron and Russell because of their descriptions. Um, They were actually close to descriptions of vandalism. Uh, I'm a little confused by the news reports. It sounds like the men that they beat up earlier in the night might have been the actual suspects for vandalism. But either way, the cops stopped them. And when they did stop them, they found Matthew's ID, credit card, and the bloodstained pistol. 
Um, despite this, the police let them seek medical care for head wounds sustained from the earlier assault, and then the two met up with their girlfriends, Kristen and Chastity, the next day. Their girlfriends helped them dispose of any remaining evidence, such what? as bloody clothes, I think the pistol, things like that. No, what? That's... And and offered alibis later for the murder, I should say that, too. Oh, my, oh my God. What? <sighs> Yeah. So the police, you find someone else's ID, credit card, and the bloodstained pistol. And I understand if you get the medical treatment, but it kind of sounds like they just kind of let them go. Yeah, that's what it seems like from the reports I read. I mean, if anyone else, like, has conflicting, like, I don't know, let us know. Let us know if that's not the case, but I think that was the case. I don't know. You'd have to change quite a few of those details for it to sound... Uh, that's just... What? Yeah. How do you... I'm not a police officer, but I feel like if I found... I mean, I need a pretty good explanation for why that person had all those things before I let them go. Exactly. I know. All right, so... Um, what are you doing? Okay. Petro is just being strange. <laughs> okay. 18 hours after the attack, a mountain biker. Ugh. 18 hours after the attack, a mountain biker noticed what looked like a scarecrow slumped along the fence. As he grew closer, he noticed it was a beaten and naked body. The biker immediately raced to the next, um, like the nearest house, to call the police. Because Matthew was only five foot two inches and about a hundred pounds, the police confused him for a child at first. But one thing was for sure: he was still alive at this point. He was transported to the Fort Collins Medical Center in Colorado, and he immediately was placed in the intensive care unit. His parents made the journey from Saudi Arabia to Colorado, which, as you could imagine, took a very long time. His mother remembers landing in the St. Paul airport and seeing her son on the front page of the news rack. Her heart was broken even more when she saw him in person. Matthew was virtually unrecognizable. It was his teeth braces that convinced his mother that it was truly her son because his face was so swollen from the beating. Less than a week later, um, on October 12, 1998, Matthew passed away. The charges against Aaron and Russell, who were caught almost immediately after the investigation started, were upgraded from attempted murder to murder. Their girlfriends faced accessory to murder charges. One thing that's unique about this case is that the majority of its infamy happened after the crime. From New York to Los Angeles, candlelight visuals were held across the nation. At the United States Capitol, politicians and celebrities celebrated Matthew's life and used his platform as a call to action. Matthew's family had to wear bulletproof vests when attending his funeral because protesters surrounded the building. SWAT team snipers were assigned to the roof to make sure nothing happened to his friends and family. The Westboro Baptist Church, a hate group and cult um, from, I think, Kansas, attended the funeral with disgusting signs filled with slurs. Dozens of counter-protesters managed to steal Westboro's spotlight by attending the funeral with homemade angel costumes constructed from sheets and PVC piping. When they spread their wings, they covered the Westboro signs. And Laramie still chooses to remember this to this day as they honor it with a mural downtown. The trial also created waves. Russell's, uh, Russell the follower, he was pretty anticlimactic in his case. In April of 1999, he entered a pretrial deal to remove the death penalty from his charge in exchange for two consecutive life sentences. And he remains in a medium, uh, medium security prison in eastern Wyoming. He remains adamant that the attack was just a botched robbery and that he was doing as Aaron said. He stated in 2018 that, quote, I think about Matthew every single day of my life. I think about him and every single one of those days that I've had that he hasn't had. His family hasn't had. His friends haven't had. I am so ashamed I was ever a part of this, end quote. A few leaders of the LGBT community feels Russell has atoned for his crimes. How do you feel about that from your research? I mean, I don't know. It, it's pretty vicious. They beat him like 20 times, like... It is. That doesn't I sound know. like a botched robbery. That it doesn't, and um, the judge agreed that it was basically a hate crime from the start when they pretended 
that when they like leveraged sexual orientation to gain trust, it, you know, from the very start, right. they used something. Um, so I don't think Russell was telling the truth. Um, I also think that there are some leaders, I should clarify, there are some leaders that feel like, you know, he's not atoned for his crimes and he never will be. Okay, so I will talk about Aaron, though, who had a much more complicated criminal proceeding. So he took the case to trial a year after the attack, and he did something awful. He attempted to use the gay panic defense. Um, what? Just for when some you're clarification. Pretending to be gay? <laughs> huh? He was yeah, pretending I know. to be gay, and he's. And first of all, there's never a good excuse to use the gay panic defense, as I'm sure you'll clarify. But I, especially yeah. not when you're pretending to be gay. <sighs> yeah, that's so true. Um. Okay, so just for some clarification for our international listeners, according to the American Bar Association, the gay panic defense is, quote, a legal strategy which asks the jury to find that the victim's sexual orientation or gender identity is to blame for the defendant's violent reaction, including murder, end quote. So essentially, it's asking you to find the victim as the cause of their own death. Of their own murder. Like, it's just messed up to think about. Right. Like, basically, well, I guess they were gay, so we can, it's, we can let it slide a little. Which, no. Um, if you're a really hateful person and that leads you to do violent things, uh, you, don't get, you don't get to get off of that just because you have, you know, hateful exactly. tendencies. Some people have pointed out that, you know, men feel intimidated when gay men hit on them, so it leads them to murder. And so they're like, well, couldn't women do the same thing when they get catcalled as they're walking down the street or followed or hit on while they're, like, working at a diner, you know? Yeah, and I'm not, like, you know, maybe you do feel intimidated by someone who's gay. I don't know, that could happen. There could be, I'm, I'm sure there are creepy people who would hit on you and you'd feel uncomfortable, but... I don't know. That wouldn't make murder appropriate. That wouldn't... And the other thing is, I feel like there are... You know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but I feel like there are a lot of straight people who, you know, automatically assume that gay people just want to sleep with them or that, you know, they have, like, these prejudices that lead them to infer something threatening. And I don't know. I don't think it's good to just allow... um you know, prejudice to get someone off the hook. Like, if you thought black people were violent and you used that as an excuse, that wouldn't be okay. I don't... I wouldn't think that should be able to lower your sentence, you know? I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I completely agree with all of that. So, yes, the gay panic defense is awful. Unfortunately, um, as of this recording... It is still legal in most states, and in fact, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, Utah, Arizona have not even brought legislation to the table in attempts to outlaw it. Oh, so, wow. most of the Rocky Mountains. Um, yeah, the Western states... Like if you if you felt threatened, that could be an excuse, but it shouldn't be, like, singled out because they were gay. Exactly, like, if yeah. If you feel threatened, that's one thing. But it's another thing to kind of place, you know, being threatened by gay people as, like, worse somehow. Or, like, to provide, you know, it's just gross. Exactly, yeah. So, um, Aaron's argument in this was that he did feel threatened when Matthew placed his hand on Aaron's leg. And he tried to bring in, like, evidence that he was sexually assaulted as a child. So, it, you know, incited things. But the judge ultimately ruled that Aaron's defense was too similar to claiming temporary insanity, which is not illegal, uh, which is not legal in Wyoming. So the jury convicted Aaron of his murder, and Matthew's parents actually ended up pushing for a life sentence over the death penalty. His father stated, quote, I would like nothing better than to see you die, Mr. McKinney. However, this is a time to begin the healing process, to show mercy to someone who refused to show any mercy, end quote. Both Kristen and Chastity were sentenced for being accessories to the first-degree murder after the fact. Their sentences were relatively short. I believe they're only about two or three years long. Um, 
Matthew's legacy lives on more than theirs ever will, combined. Some millennials say his death marks the age, the end of their age of innocence. A collection of his theater scripts, school works, and photos have memorialized Matthew in the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. Elton John wrote his song, American Triangle, as a symbolic representation of the beating. Matthew's murder became the subject of the Laramie Project, which is a play that is produced often by American high schools. Several, several other books, poems, and movies have been created in his honor. His parents helped found the Matthew Shepard Foundation, an organization that pushes for legislation and the education of people around the world about hate crimes. And it's actually, I think, one of the most prominent LGBTQ organizations to this day. In 2009, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrne... Ugh, let me restart that. In 2009, the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crime Prevention Act extended the umbrella of the federal hate crime law to cover acts committed because of gender identity, sexual orientation, or disability. James uh, Byrd Jr. was a black man who was brutally murdered in the same year as Matthew by three white supremacists, so he was included in the act because his family was also pushing for legislation. As of 2021, however, Wyoming does not have a state law for hate crimes, and it's one of the last states to actually not have a law. Multiple attempts to pass such a law in the so-called equality state have failed. If we have any Wyoming listeners, please call your legislatures and let them know that you want a hate crime law passed. For our other listeners, I urge you to find organizations that work toward the betterment of all people, especially those who might be targeted just for being themselves. Contact your Congress as well, because chances are there's room for improvement when it comes to equality in your state or country. I know Pride Month is ending. Sorry. I know Pride Month is ending, but that does not mean that your awareness and compassion needs to end too. We need to be looking after each other always. All right, that's all I have for today. Um, it got a little preachy, but this is why there is Pride Month because people are targeted just for being themselves. And I think that's really important. And if you still don't understand why there's a Pride Month, I think you need to go research more because these cases, I wish I could say Matthew's case was alone, but it's not. These happen a lot, especially to transgender people, black transgender women. It's just awful to think about. I'm sorry, I'm getting really like no, yeah. preachy, but that's no, it. <laughs> and it and things have gotten better, but especially for like you said, like I mean, I've always heard uh, um, black transgender women are especially targeted for hate crimes. So, I mean, it's still something that goes on, and I don't know. I mean, yeah, murder. Be- I think that's <laughs> the most prevalent group where murder happens. Like. I mean, like, where the victims are, you know? That's, they're the most at risk out of anybody in the entire world. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I think we need hate crime legislation. And at the very least, we need, um, you know, we need to end, like, gay panic defenses. Like, that's not okay. Yeah, it's just, I'm glad he didn't get away with it. Uh, away. I'm glad uh, Aaron didn't get away with using the gay panic defense. I am so glad too. And um, okay, maybe I should retract my statement. I don't know in the entire world. I'm sure there's other groups, but definitely in America, they right. are the most likely um to get murdered. Just want to clarify. Uh, yeah, I had another thought too, but then it. I don't. I just don't get how you can like say no to passing a law against hate crimes. The fact that multiple legislations have occurred mm-hmm. and they just won't pass it through. That's just... I just don't get it. Yeah. Ugh, sorry, we can cut most of this because this is getting a lot. I feel like I'm getting heated, but... Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it, it is, and it's... I think it does get you heated. Like, that's why this case is so famous, just because of how infuriating it is. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you hadn't heard of this case before, but... It really is a very um, pivotal moment for a lot of LGBTQ legislation and that sort of thing. And, I mean, I know Matthew's parents became huge activists in the years after his death. Um, exactly, yeah. They even traveled to several different countries um, to try to pass legislation there. 
All right. Well, I want to say thanks, Ari, but I don't know if I should thank you. <laughs> that was that was heavy. It is very heavy. It's just so brutal. It takes a special kind of monster to leave someone in the October cold of Wyoming to die. And, well, we'll try to make our next episode a little bit lighter. Um, yeah. Um, unless you're covering murders. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> ooh, I think I have some murders. We'll try. We'll try. We'll we'll try to keep it balanced. We won't ever do two murders in the same episode because I think that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. No. But um. Yeah, I think that's all I have too. Um, if anyone listening found something we missed in either case, maybe you have a theory about the Battle of Los Angeles. Uh, write into our email, Rocky Mountain Unexplained at gmail dot com. Let us know your or thoughts. Or any corrections, yeah. Or corrections. Uh, I try to be pretty good on my facts, but... Um, yeah, me too. But, you know, I'm sure we make mistakes. And so if you have things you would like to point out, we would love to be proven wrong. So. Or not necessarily mistakes, but also just clarifications that we either left yeah, out for that's time true. or those sort of things. Maybe cut all of this because this is making me doubt our own credibility. <laughs> Yeah, well, write us right in. Let us know your thoughts. Um, you know, do you have a theory about the Battle of Los Angeles? Do you think we missed something with Matthew Shepard? Let us know. Um, otherwise, thank you for listening. Thank you. You've been listening to Rocky Mountain Unexplained. If you have enjoyed the show, subscribe, leave a review, or tell someone about us. Have you experienced something unexplainable? Tell us your stories of true crime, the paranormal, or the cryptic, and we might just feature your unnerving tale on the show. You can reach us at Rocky Mountain Unexplained at gmail.com. The next time you see a shadow ducking behind a tree, unexplained lights in the sky, or something that just doesn't feel quite right, maybe take a closer look. Until next time, listeners, stay safe out there.